Welcome to the Equipers Church Budapest podcast. We hope today's message will encourage and inspire you. For more information, check equiperschurch.au. Okay, I want to talk to you tonight um, about the importance of connection, the vital importance of connection. Uh, how many of you know that connection is one of those, it, it's almost an intangible in a way, because you can be with a whole group of people and still feel incredibly alone and isolated. And so what I want to unpack to you tonight is what connection really, really looks like. And I want to talk to you about sort of three dimensions of connection. Connecting with the people of God, connecting with the purpose of God, and connecting with the promises of God. Is that okay? So that's where we're going to go. So you, you, know, you, know, you know, if you need me to move on, you know, because you know there's three points. If I get stuck on the first one, you can sort of just hint or do something because it's hot tonight, and I know, and I'm trying not to keep you long, but anyway. Okay, here's the first one. Connecting to God's people. People often say to me, why do you talk about getting connected to God's people before getting connected to God's purpose? Shouldn't we get connected to God's purpose in order to get connected to God's people? But it really doesn't work like that. I've been giving a lot of thought to this. In fact, in the first chapter of my book, um, I talk a lot about this and, and try and unpack it a little bit. But when it comes to connection, when Jesus called the disciples, here's the language he used. Follow me and I will make you. In other words, the process of transformation doesn't come first by connecting to purpose. It comes first by connecting to relationship. Now, I want you to think about this because sometimes we're so eager to get people caught up with purpose. And I believe in getting connected to purpose. Don't get me wrong here. I think every single one of us is made for purpose. But I think on the journey of being in relationship, we discover purpose. We actually discover what we've been made for. And so when Jesus is inviting people to follow him, that's exactly what he emphasizes. Follow me and the process of transformation, I will make you fishes of men. In other words, what I've purposed for you, you will become, but it comes out of relationship. One of the things you'll hear us say a lot in Equippers Church is that significant ministry flows out of significant relationships. Isn't it interesting that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, not one by one? Isn't it interesting how Jesus defined church? He said, where two or three are gathered together, in my name, there I am in the midst. So in other words, you cannot do church alone. You can do a devotion alone. You can get saved alone. You can, uh, uh, you can uh, write and study alone. You can do all those things alone, but you cannot have church alone. It's two or three. And by the way, that isn't even mature church. That's embryo church. The more people you get gathered together, the more impact there is. And Jesus promises to show up in a way that's different than if we're just having a personal devotional with Jesus. So everything that's significant in life and ministry comes out of relationship. And that means that we have to be intentional to connect with one another. Think about it like this. Many times we're trying to shortcut what God wants to do. When Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem, he looked over the city and he made this statement. And it's fascinating. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you 
as a hen gathers her chicks. That's a very powerful metaphor. For one thing, it's a female metaphor, by the way. So uh, just think about that for a moment. I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And many times I've heard people talk about church. Well, you don't need to go to a building to be in church. You can go down the pub or you can just have a meal with other Christians. Can I just say to you, that is not the gathering Jesus is speaking about. Yeah, you don't need to go to a building, but you having a coffee with another believer is not a gathering of the church. That's you having coffee with another believer. That's fellowship. That's nice. I love to do it. It's encouraging. Maybe some discipling is going on there. But when Jesus says gather, he's talking about a sense of belonging. And think about all the big meetings he had. But he says, basically, you came to meetings, but you didn't allow yourself to be gathered. Gathered is where you sense, I'm really connected to this company of people. And that's a process that you go through because nobody ever joins a company of people and says, I'm in 100%. Well, very few people do anyway. What you do is you go along and you're sussing everybody out. You're thinking, right, who are the weirdos in this group? Who are the normal people in this group? Who are the fanatics in this group? Who are the, who are the people who are on the edge, on the periphery in this group? You're sussing all that stuff out and it's a process. And it's a little bit like dating, isn't it? First of all, there's a little bit of attraction that goes on. And then at some point, somebody's going to have to dare to ask the question, would you like to go out for a meal? And then you're wondering, if I say yes, is this a date? Isn't this a date? Are we just friends? What's going on here? And after you've been out for two or three meals, you're starting to think, yeah, maybe this is a date. Maybe I've got a boyfriend now. Maybe I've got a girlfriend now. And everyone's very tentative at the beginning. Am I the only one in the room who thinks this way? I've been around a long time talking to a lot of people. People like, everything is tentative because commitment comes out of confidence. And confidence comes out of spending time together and being relationally connected. And all churches are simply a group of people who've taken the time to spend time to one another and to say yes to being gathered. It's interesting that there's a corollary to this. Jesus says, you are not willing. He says, from henceforth, your house is left to you desolate. Every time we say no to being gathered, we're isolating ourselves. And the ultimate end of that kind of isolation is desolation. We have desolate families because we have broken families. We have desolate people. Why? Because they've been isolated. They've been pulled apart. They've been disconnected. God wants to connect with you. He wants you to connect with him. But the moment we get connected to Jesus, Jesus is in love with the church. Ephesians chapter 5, he loved the church and gave himself for it. So here's the thing. I can't say I love Jesus and I hate the church. Because the church is what he gave himself for. Jesus didn't die for buildings, he died for people. And so when Jesus gave himself for the church, I prayed a prayer in my early 30s as a young pastor. My prayer was this, Lord, teach me to love what you love and hate what you hate. It's not a bad prayer. Teach me to love what you love and hate what you hate. Do you know that's not easy? I remember the Lord saying to me, I love the church. I love the people. I love the weirdos. I love the fanatics. 
I love the normal ones. I love the people who spend most of their time in their head, the intellectuals, and I love the passionate, expressive ones. I love them all. You don't have to be somebody else. Jesus loves you just the way you are. He loves you just the way you are. Okay, okay. Just a minute. We have a rule in our church, okay? If one claps, we all clap. Is that okay? Let's try it. Thank you. That's just so much better, isn't it? Than just the front row. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it's like if you're a preacher, you think, is that a sympathy clap or what? You know? If it's worth clapping, we'll all clap. So, here's what it says in Hebrews 10.25. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Hey, during the pandemic, we learned how to cope with not meeting together. We all went online. We did some, really, some of us did some really nice shows. You know, we presented well. The worship was great. I have to say, I love that season. Because instead of spending an hour getting ready for church... Five minutes before church, down in my pajamas, cup of coffee, feet up on the table, and I'm watching worship. I'm even singing along, but I'm in my gym jams. I haven't even done my hair, haven't had a shower, nobody can see me. I felt fantastic. And then we started doing Zoom calls, didn't we? We sort of had to tidy up a bit there for Zoom calls. But for me, it was the waist up. You know, as long as my hair looked good, as long as I had a nice top on, it's like nobody had to know what was down here. We won't talk about it, will we? But you know what I mean? Some of you, you know what I'm talking about, you pajama people. Just you look so good, didn't you, from the waist up until somebody says, why don't we stand and worship the Lord? No, no, I'm not doing that. But we, we learned during the pandemic how to deal with life being isolated, not being able to meet together. And do you know what? Some of us have just got into the habit where that's just easy to do. And the writer here says, look, don't neglect the meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially that the day of his return is drawing near. In other words, meeting together is always intentional. It's always intentional. You have to plan to do it. And how many of you know, listen, I had six kids. Do you know what it's like getting six kids ready for church? Do you know how crazy that is in the morning? Five girls and one bathroom? Hello? We had to schedule that stuff. Best thing I ever did was buy a house with three bathrooms. We even thought of converting a bedroom to a bathroom. I mean, you know, girls need bathrooms. That's just a fact of life. And they need lots of time in those bathrooms. And I'm telling you, I've never seen so many shampoos. It's like, girls, can't you just share a shampoo? No, 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 my hair's dry, my hair's oily. No, 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 no. Dad, you don't understand. It's like, okay, fine. But it's just a major, major organization to get everybody to church. But you have to be intentional. Don't neglect it. In fact... In the, in the Greek, the word is don't forsake. Paul uses this word when he says, Demas has forsaken me. It's to abandon. It's to leave it behind. Now, you think about Jesus when he was growing up. Here's what it says in Luke 4.16. Talking of Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Do you know what? As was his custom could be translated as was his habit. Jesus went to synagogue every single Friday night. 
That's when they have synagogue. Every Friday, Jesus went to synagogue. Can you believe that? That was his custom. Now, there's only three recorded miracles in a synagogue. All the rest are outside. So I'm not saying that that's where all the action was. I'm simply saying that because of the culture of what he was part of, Jesus created a habit that he didn't kick against. Can you imagine being Jesus in the synagogue when they're reading Isaiah 53? You know? And, 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 and there they are, they're reading it, you know. Uh, he was bruised for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities. By his stripes we're healed. You're Jesus. That's you. They're talking about you. And you're sitting on the front row. Wouldn't you be tempted? I'd be tempted to do that. Wouldn't you? It's like, oh my goodness. And every week Jesus is silent for 30 years. He doesn't say anything. But he has a habit of going to synagogue. Why? Because it was about connecting. It was about connecting with the word of God. It was about connecting with the people of God. It was about connecting with a company of people and being part of that company. Now, it doesn't mean that they necessarily connected with him, but he did. In Acts 17, 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. In Acts 17, Paul, even though he planted churches, went to synagogue every week, as was his custom. He was a Jew. The only time he didn't go was when they didn't let him go. But otherwise he would go. He'd talk about Jesus. He would reason with them. Listen, you and I ultimately are products of the habits that we build into our lives. We're products of the relationships that we build into our lives. Listen, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Proverbs chapter 13 says this. If you walk with the wise, you become wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Aren't you glad that in order to become wise, you don't need to memorize the Encyclopedia Britannica? You don't necessarily have to have an IQ of 162. You don't have to have any of those things. You simply have to connect with people who are wise, who are ahead of you. So here's my question for you tonight. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you hanging out with that's bigger than you? I mean, who's ahead of you spiritually? Who's ahead of you in terms of their obedience to Christ? Who's ahead of you in terms of understanding the purpose of God? Who are you hanging out with? Because if you walk with the wise, you become wise. But the companion of fools gets destroyed. And in the book of Problems, by the way, the fool is not somebody who's intellectually deficient. The fool is somebody who's lazy. The fool is somebody who's arrogant and proud. The fool is somebody who in Psalm 14 says in his heart, there is no God. He's already made decisions about his life and his future. And the Bible says you're a fool when you do that. But if you're somebody who spots people who've done life well and you say, I want to hang out with those people. I look at their marriage and say, wow, that looks like a good marriage. I look at their kids and the way they're growing up. I say, wow, they're doing something right. I want to spend time with those kinds of people. Do you get it? It's not rocket science. But if you're hanging around with people who are just dopeheads all the time, guess what? Your life is going to get destroyed in time. Don't be that kind of person. Get connected with God's people and be fussy. Hello? Choose people who are bigger than you, who are ahead of you, who can help you take steps forward. 
That's what I love about Jesus calling the 12 to himself. He called them into a relationship. And it's so funny, the type of people that Jesus called. You know, I just think of two in particular. You've got Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a whole group of people who joined together to train to assassinate Roman officials. So they, today we call them terrorists. That's Simon the Zealot. And then you've got Matthew, the tax collector. Today we call those collaborators. They work with the occupying army to take advantage of their own people. So the tax collectors were very wealthy men in Jesus' day. And they not only collected taxes on behalf of the Romans, but the Romans says, whatever, whatever tax you want to take for yourself, that's fine. We just want this. So they always had a little extra for themselves. So they were the most despised group of people. And Jesus calls a Matthew, who's a tax collector, and Simon the Zealot. I think he must have made them sit together at breakfast. Can you, can you imagine what that was like? I mean, they were sent out two by two. I like to think Jesus sent those two out together. And you know what? They didn't kill each other. Why? Because they had something more important than their political persuasion. And that was Jesus. Their love for Jesus. And so I, I want to say to you tonight, come on. Let's be a people who are intentional about connecting with one another because significant things flow out of significant relationships. Yeah? <laughs> Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. He said, since we were torn away from you, he's talking to the Thessalonian church. He was there probably about a month. Since we were torn away from you, they were kicked out of the town. Brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I just love that, the way he phrases that. He says, you know what, we were torn away. We didn't want to go. We were forced to go. We had to leave in person but not in heart. Do you know what's so amazing to me is that when God gathers people, you know, where two or three are gathered, how I long to gather you. The enemy is wanting to scatter. God is wanting to gather. When God gathers us and connects us to one another, we cannot see each other for a while and yet we're together in heart. Do you get this? One of the things I've learned is, who are the people who has God has connected you in heart? I'm not just talking about people you say hi to. I'm talking about people that you feel God connected me. Over 20 years ago, you know, I met a guy called Bruce Monk. He came to the Bible college where I was a senior lecturer. And he spoke and he said a lot of stuff that resonated with me, stuff that I had believed and he was actually saying it. I thought, this is interesting, meeting someone else who's was talking similar language and uh, over the years we started we started sort of talking he would come and visit occasionally and we would always spend time together and then eventually when I left the Bible college I was moving back to London and uh, he found out I was moving to London and at that, that time he was living in London and planting an equipper's church and he said why don't you come and work with me and uh, you know I was with a particular denomination at the time and uh, the denomination came to me and said, we'll give you any church in, in the UK that you like. You can choose your church because I had a good reputation at that time. 
And it was so tempting to choose a really nice church and a nice salary and everything. But, but the Lord, I felt the Lord say to me, no, I, I've given you this, this relationship. It's going to be important for you. It's going to be important for him. It's going to be important for the kingdom. And, uh, you know, we, we started working together and I was, all I was doing was training and developing, actually, for two years. And then after two years of doing that, God spoke to me and I literally had a prophetic word. I woke up, just to tell you how unspiritual the moment was, I was on my way to the toilet. I woke up one morning, I was on my way to the toilet. It wasn't like I was seeking the Lord, I wasn't fasting, I wasn't doing any of that. I was bursting to go to the toilet. And on the way to the toilet, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And said, Bill's going to ask you to lead his church and I want you to say yes. And I thought, that's interesting. And then I thought, who's Bill? <laughs> and I realized I didn't know anybody called Bill. And so I just kept this word. I shared it with my wife. She said, oh, that's interesting. I shared it with Bruce. They said, oh, I, I think I know a guy called Bill. That's really interesting. And then six months later... This pastor called Bill took me out for a meal and asked me would I lead his church. He said, I'm leaving the country. I'd like you to take over my church. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I promise you the last thing I ever wanted to do was go into church leadership. I'd, I'd done that in Colchester. I'd led a church for 15 years, seven years as an associate pastor, eight years as a senior pastor. Everything that could go wrong in a church went wrong in my church. Just think of anything that you've read ever. And that happened to me. And it's like, it's partly why I wrote the book. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go into training and development. I'm going to teach leaders how not to do it and help them do it well. And I was training pastors all over Europe and Africa. I did that successfully for eight years. And the last thing I wanted to do was lead a church. And then the Holy Spirit gave me this word. And then this guy actually asked me. And I thought to myself... I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll go and talk to Bruce, and he'll say, no, I need you here as a trainer. No, you can't do it. So I went and talked to him, and we had a conversation. He said, I think you should do it. And then I went to my wife, who told me, I will never, ever lead a church again. Don't ever ask me. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll talk to her, and that will be my way out. And she said, I think that might be God. And I thought, oh, no, you know, there's no way. And then the church was a really terrible church. I mean, it was like one of the, it was worse than the church I'd left that I was leading. I mean, I was just, it was like, oh my goodness, it was 30,000 pounds in debt. They said, we can't pay you. And all I had was this word from Jesus, I want you to say yes. But you know what gave me the confidence to say yes? Because I knew I was connected to a group of people who would be there for me when I need them. And I didn't have that in my 30s when I was leading a church as a young man. I had a lot of success. By the time I was 34, I had a church of 500, 350 adults, 150 kids. But I couldn't handle it at 34. I didn't have the maturity. I didn't have the wisdom. I was too insecure. All of that stuff. And now I was an older guy in my 50s. But I knew I had this connection with Bruce and with others. And so we said yes. And you know, in 10 years, we took a church from 35 people to 1,000 people. It was astonishing what God did. One claps, we all clap, right? <laughs> okay. And the reason that I think God did that was whenever I hit a barrier, whenever I hit a problem, I was never hitting it alone. I had a group of people I could go to who had more experience, more wisdom, and I knew I was connected to. 
I was connected to people who could help me in the situation. And because of that, we broke through the barriers that in my 30s I couldn't break through. It was like I wanted to break through. I wanted to please Jesus. I wanted to serve him. But it was like the resource wasn't there because I didn't understand the importance of connection. Now I do. And so, listen, here's just a simple thought for you. Hey, listen, when your back's against the wall, who do you ring? Who do you call? Who's your go-to person when things, or are you just there on your own? And do you have crisis people? You only ever call them in a crisis. You know, it's like the emergency room in a hospital. That's the only time you ever get a checkup. You never go for a regular checkup to stay healthy. But I'm talking about a level of connection where you stay healthy. It's not just crisis calls. It's a sense of connection. We're in this together as the people of God. And what I've tried to do is to help leaders understand, listen, you've got to be connected. You've got to be connected locally, but you've got to be connected translocally because God's purpose is a worldwide vision. It's a worldwide vision. Okay, here's the second thing. Getting connected to God's purpose. Matthew 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Every single one of you here is called to make disciples. Now listen, not every single one of you is called to full-time ministry. Some of you are going to be doctors or lawyers or policemen or teachers or nurses. Some of you are going to be car mechanics. Some of you are going to be in sales. Some of you are going to start your own businesses. But it doesn't matter what context you are in in life. God wants you to be an influencer for the kingdom of God. He wants you to make disciples, followers of Jesus. And here's the thing. When the disciples were following Jesus, they were watching him do all kinds of stuff. And in the process of following him, they started connecting with God's purpose. That God wants to save people. God wants to heal people. God wants to redeem people. God wants to set people free. God wants to realign people like he did with Zacchaeus. God wants to do all of that, and he wants to use you and I as instruments of seeing that kind of change. And when I... Yeah, we're going to get one vote. You're good now. <laughs> so the, the getting connected to purpose, it comes later often. It comes with understanding. Paul thought his purpose, when he, got, when he encountered Jesus, he had a deep sense of this calling on his life, But you read the book of Acts and nothing worked. I mean, he preached in Damascus. He had to escape in a basket down a, you know, out of a window. And then he went to Jerusalem and he caused a ruckus there. In in fact, Luke says it like this. It says, the disciples sent Paul away. And then the next verse says this. And then the churches had peace. (laughs) It's like this guy was so passionate and enthusiastic that he was just talking Jesus and stirring up trouble and strife and people wanted to kill him. And then he eventually goes away to Tarsus and you don't hear from him for at least 11 years. It's like silent, 11 years of silence. It's like, what's he doing? If you want to know, read Tom Wright's book on the biography of Paul. It's very, very interesting. But my point is this. He wasn't ready for what God had called him for. God was preparing him and shaping him. And ultimately, God used a man called Barnabas, 
who, when he saw what was going on in Antioch, he saw Jews and Gentiles saved and collaborating together. For the very first time in the New Testament, you have Jews and non-Jews worshipping Jesus. For the very first time. In Jerusalem, uh, for the first 10 years of church life, it's entirely Jewish. But now Jews and Gentiles worshipping Jesus together. And he says, I remember Paul talking about this. I remember Paul sharing with me. And, and Barnabas is really naughty, actually. For all of you Bible readers here, he doesn't go back to Jerusalem. The apostles sent him from Jerusalem to see what was going on. He goes up to Tarsus to get Paul and then brings Paul back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they're teaching the church. They establish the church. Because everyone in Jerusalem would have killed what God was doing in Antioch. Why? Because they didn't have the revelation and the, and the largeness of heart to understand what God was doing. And so Barnabas didn't go back there and get them. He went north and got Paul. And then after a year, they established the church. It was so successful, they had to have a Jerusalem council about the whole thing in Acts 15. It caused such a stir. Why? God was connecting him to purpose, but it took time. It took maturity. You know, I think about my own life and all the mistakes I've made as a young leader. And, I, you know, and sometimes it can overwhelm you. You can make so many mistakes in life and you just get overwhelmed. But God is often using that to humble you, to prepare you, to shape you, to make you more teachable, to make you realize I need connection with other people. I might be good, but I'm not that good. You know what I'm saying? Listen, it doesn't matter if you are the best footballer in the world. It's not about scoring goals. It's about scoring one more than they do. And you need a team to help you do that. Listen, for all of you football fans, Manchester United, 4-0. Brentford beat them 4-0. And they had Ronaldo. You can have great, great players, but unless you're functioning as a team, you won't win matches and you certainly won't win championships. You've got to learn how to play to one another's strengths. Paul was a brilliant man in and of himself, a brilliant intellect, but he had to learn to submit to a man called Barnabas. And in all those early chapters, it's Barnabas and Saul. Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. It's Barnabas and Saul. It's not till halfway through their first missionary journey that it flips around and it becomes Saul and Barnabas. Because sometimes you need to put yourself under somebody who can help you become bigger in your heart so that you can then fulfill your destiny and your calling in God. Do you get it? Connect to God's purpose. And then finally, friends, here's a thought for you. Connect to God's promises. Do you realize that God wired you to live by promise? God wired you that way. Because what promise does is it invokes faith. Promise enables faith to rise up. Now, I told you I had six kids. When my kids were little, one of the best things was when I walked into the room. The oldest was about 14. The youngest was about four. And uh, I'd walk in the room. I'd say, hey, kids, who wants to go to McDonald's? I'm not kidding you. Even at 14, it was like, yes! They got excited. The little ones were jumping up and down. I want a happy meal. They knew exactly what they wanted. All I did was make a promise. We're going to go to McDonald's. 
I'm just declaring something, but they're over here and they're already living now in the reality of the promise of the future. They're excited about it right now. That's what God's promises are designed to do for you and me. They're designed to excite you, to stir faith so that you live in the now. Now faith is. Why? Because of a promise. The promise has a fulfillment in the future, but the joy of the promise is now when you take it into your spirit. And then what do you do? When do you begin to organize your life towards the promise? When are we getting in the car? When are we going to go? I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to put my shoes on. What are they doing? They're organizing their life according to the promise. You and I in 1 Peter, have been given exceeding great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. So what promises are stirring you? You know, uh, he talked about Psalm 23 earlier. I just love that psalm. Because there's three declarations that David makes based on promises, based on things that he believed. So here it is. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's, that's the promise. Here's the fulfillment. Here's the expectation. I would like nothing. How did, he, how did he get from there to there? The Lord is my shepherd. I will like nothing. Wow, that's incredible. How did you do that? Well, David, I'm, it must have been like this. He goes, you know, my sheep, I take care of them. I feed them. I protect them. I watch over them. They don't lack anything because I'm their shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's going to protect me. He's going to feed me. He's going to watch over me. He's going to be with me. I'm going to lack nothing. That's my confession. Every confession you make tells me what you believe. So what are the promises that you believe that you're willing to confess? And then he says this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? What's the promise? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's a promise. You're with me. Lord, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19. Hebrews 13. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What shall I fear? I will not fear. What can man do to me? Every time there's a promise, there should be a confession. And every time you confess something, it says something about what you believe. So what are you believing for? What promises have you taken hold of? You know, there's the promise of protection. I love this one. The promise of protection. It says this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. <laughs> Proverbs 18.10. The Lord is a strong tower. It's such a powerful metaphor, isn't it? It's like the Lord is like a castle. You can run in, the drawbridge gets pulled up, and you are safe. The Lord is a tower you can run to. David said, uh, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. He was using all these metaphors to declare, I believe that God is going to watch over me and God is going to protect me. Do you get it, friends? There's the promise of protection. What about this one? The promise of provision. 
Here's, here's what it says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is a provider. He's a provider. Paul put it like this. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul had confidence God would provide. And it didn't matter whether he had a lot or whether he had a little. He learned contentment. God is a provider. You know, before, well, nearly three years ago now, in November it will be three years, I resigned as a senior pastor of a large church. I had a great salary. Didn't have a great salary for the first year of working for the church. Didn't have a great salary for the second, third, fourth or fifth year working for the church. But eventually, you know, you reach a thousand people and they want to pay you well, so that's fine. Um, I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. So I gave up a really great salary, a lot of security, and just went on the journey by faith. And, and the church said, well, out of the mission fund, we'll pay you this much, which was about a third of what I needed. I thought, okay, I can trust God for two thirds. Yeah, I can do that. You know, I've been on this journey a long time. And so, uh, come on up, guys. So... Uh, there I was, trusting God, traveling, speaking at conferences. People loved me, paid me well, didn't have to worry about looking after a church. You know, no more counseling, no more headaches. You know, the great thing about an itinerant preacher is you blow in, you blow up, and you blow out. You leave all the problems to the local guy. It's a, it's a wonderful life. And... Uh, there I was enjoying this right up until March with COVID hit, you know, and then no more traveling. And I was, you know, that's, that's how I live, traveling and speaking. No more traveling, no more speaking. And the first month was hard, and the second month was hard, and the third month I was beginning to feel stressed. Did you hear the way the piano came in just as I said stressed? <laughs> and I was really wondering what is God doing I was the leader of a fantastic church and I handed it over to a guy and uh, I thought you know I felt like the guy on the Emmaus road we had hoped <laughs> I had hoped <laughs> this was my expectation we couldn't afford to pay the mortgage on our house had to take a mortgage holiday for three months I was really beginning to feel it. I remember going to God and just saying, Lord, I think I've followed you. I think I've been obedient. I think I've done what you've asked me to do. I know what I want from you. What do you want from me? You know, like, what more do you want from me? And then I prayed this prayer. Is there an act of obedience I can perform right now that will release your provision? And as soon as I prayed that prayer, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, I want you to start writing. Now, over the years, I've had so many prophecies about writing books. You know, I'm, I'm scared. When everyone, every, whenever anyone says I've got a prophetic word for you, I'm scared they're going to say, yeah, I, I, see, I see you writing books because... Yeah, it's just, 
It's not that I didn't want to do it. It's just that I never had time to do it. So I tried writing for a week and I wrote 200 words. And then I thought about killing myself. I just thought, this is not working, you know. And I went, I went back to God and I said, this isn't working, Lord. You want me to write, I'm trying to write. And then this thought came into my head. You mean, Peter, you can't do what I've asked you to do without my grace to help you. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> then I started crying. I said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Please give me your grace to do what you've asked me to do. Please extend your hand of goodness to me so that I can do what you're asking me to do. And then I started writing. and I think the first day I wrote 3,000 words. And every day I just kept writing. I've actually written four books. So the first is here. The second is with a publisher. I'm just tidying up the third one. And the fourth is my problem child. But my point is this. God always has an answer. And after about a few weeks of writing, I got an email from a friend in another country. He said, we've been praying for you, for your family the Holy Spirit spoke to us that we need to send you this money and when I say send you some money I mean they sent me 5,000 pounds and then a few weeks later someone else wrote to me and then I got another 5,000 pounds and I thought I'm beginning to like this and I was able to pay all the debt of my house that we were behind on our mortgage pay it all off actually that year we even built an extension on our home God provided more money than I ever had when I was a senior pastor. We didn't write a begging letter. We didn't tell anybody. We just cried to Jesus. And he fulfilled his promise. You know, often God corners us just like he did the children of Israel at the Red Sea. It's like, what a setup. You know, the Egyptian army behind you, the Red Sea in front of you, and you're in a valley. What a setup. You know, and they all say, Did you bring us here to kill us in the wilderness? Is that, is that why we're here? And God says to Moses, No, use, use your rod, use your authority, use what I've put in your hand, and you're going to see something amazing. Every single one of you, you know, God's put something in your hand because you're people of purpose. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. It doesn't matter what was in the mind of men that made you here today. The mind of God was bigger. The purpose of God is greater. Your destiny is part of his idea. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. I believe that every single one of you God has a great future for you. But you've got to let those promises get into your spirit and into your heart. And, and you've got to literally make a confession based on it. You've got to say something that comes into alignment with what you believe. And sometimes you've got to change what you believe. Sometimes you've got to hang around with people 
who are people of faith, who people who've been there, been through the hard times and know your pain and know what you're struggling with and are just encouraging you as they see the day approaching, say, you can do this. Come on, I believe in you. That's really what I do as an older guy now. I just encourage younger leaders. I spend a lot of my time doing that. Just believing in them, encouraging them, helping them think through the big decisions they have to make in life so that they can do life and ministry well, which is what Jesus wants for his church. He wants you to have life and have it more abundantly. He wants you to fulfill your destiny. Why don't you stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. If you're here today and God spoke to you through this message, whether it's about getting connected to people, whether it's about getting connected to purpose, or whether it's about getting connected to promises, whatever it is, if you feel like the Spirit of God spoke to you tonight, all I want you to do is put your hand on your heart. I'm going to pray for you from the front. Just place your hand there because by placing your hand there, it's a kind of an act of faith. It's a kind of a sign to heaven to say, God, I want this to be real in my life and in my my walk with you. I want this to be something personal for me. Father, you see every single person in this room. You see their life. You see their calling. You see their destiny. You know the purpose that you've placed upon them. I ask that you come right now, Holy Spirit. I ask that your empowering presence would be with every single person, those who are struggling to understand, those, those who are still trying to capture a hold of what purpose is all about for their life. Those who are still struggling with connection or even reconnection. Those who are really searching for promises that they can hold of. Spirit of God, I ask that you would come and you would be speaking and you would be ministering and you would be extending your hand of goodness towards your people tonight. I pray that you'd strengthen people in this room. In the mighty name of Jesus.